This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ken's visit to Worldcon. The future of Call of Cthulhu. E-publishing in the big leagues and our league. And the Charles Lindbergh-Donald Kehoe Connection. So for our first segment here on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff, I would like to invite Ken to talk about all of the stuff that he saw when he was just at Worldcon. Uh, Worldcon is sort of out of my purview a little bit. I do not tend to go to the straight-up literary SF conventions, of which Worldcon, of course, is the traveling granddaddy. So perhaps you could start by assuming that the uh, rest of the listenership is as pig-ignorant as I am of this event, and paint us a general word picture of how this compares to uh, the gaming conventions that we know and love. The biggest difference between a science fiction convention, especially one that has got a strong literary focus like Worldcon, and a gaming convention is that a gaming convention, there's always something to do, right? In science fiction conventions, you go to panels, and you go to the dealer's room, and then there's hours and hours and hours of just wandering around. Uh, and my guess has always been that these conventions exist primarily to let fans who always go to these conventions hook up. And those people are off having fun conversations because they're the people who saw each other last OddCon or last WISCon or last ReaderCon or last whatever con it happened to be. And so they're uh, off having a great uh, grand time without the benefit of role-playing games. Unlike in a game convention, where if we are bored for you know any period of time whatsoever, we just wander over to open gaming and uh, then just try to extricate ourselves from uh, something fun. Uh, the other difference, obviously, is that you and I at a gaming convention have our own circle of cronies that we wander off to and uh, do the exact same thing that people who have their circle of fans at a literary SF convention uh, would do. So the, the the sort of the culture of fandom is similar in both uh, uh, gaming conventions and science fiction conventions. And since, like yourself, I'm primarily one of those who uh, fandom uh, refers to as a fee jog, fandom is just a goddamn hobby, as opposed to fee wall, fandom is a way of life. Uh, I basically show up at the at, a, at a, even a Worldcon basically to do panels, uh, maybe to listen to panels, and to hit the dealer's room. Uh, and that is pretty much my uh, my experience at any uh, science fiction convention, unless it happens to be one where there's a strong gaming track like MissCon has, or where I'm, you know, a guest with more responsibilities. But at Worldcon, I was just sort of a an ancillary add-on to the programming because I know the con committee and they're nice people. So what uh, did you get added on to doing? I got added on to doing, uh, I think, four panels. Uh, plus, I did a what they call a coffee clatch, which is an opportunity to meet uh, your fans around a little table close up. Uh, which was gratifyingly attended by people I didn't already know, so that was nice. And I did a reading. And so as someone who is sort of on the, you know, the next step over of uh, geekery from uh, literary science fiction, how much crossover did you feel from people who knew who you were, uh, who knew gaming as well as literary science fiction? There was there was a smattering. I, I, I was certainly not the biggest uh, star in any conversation. Uh, there was always, you know... Uh, and this is Kenneth Hyde, and then they would look down at your badge and see that you're a program participant, so you ostensibly have some connection to uh, the the scene that they care about. And then there's the polite, and what do you write question, and you say tabletop gaming material, and then you either get the eyes glaze over, 
or you get like Dungeons and Dragons, like you get from you know, maybe your younger nephews, and then uh, you or you get uh, the oh, I used to play whatever it happened to be back in the day, and some of them would out themselves as GURPS players or facet players from back in the day. But it it really is it's a different uh, sort of a fandom, and certainly I think that the the overlap is is even less than it is at a at a comic book convention. I think that the literary SF guys are there sort of self-selected, especially at a convention like Worldcon, because they have a deep suspicion of any media more recent than uh, Gutenberg and don't want it to sort of get uh, its delicious chocolate into their tasty peanut butter. And how worldy is Worldcon? How many people would you guess were there from the uh, greater Chicago area and how many people had actually uh, flown in and made a grand pilgrimage to be there? Well, Worldcon is very worldy. There are a lot of uh, Australian... At any given panel that I was at, I would hear an antipodal accent, an Australian or a New Zealand accent. There was a number of Chinese uh, fans and guests that came over. There was... Uh, there were, I think, six panels about Chinese science fiction. Some of them, admittedly, had sort of the same rotating uh, crew as panelists, but they'd brought over at least uh, three uh, Chinese science fiction writers and publishers and editors who lived in China and a couple of Chinese Americans who had fairly extensive connections back and forth, uh, as well as uh, you'd hear French accents or co other continental accents, lots of Brits, obviously, both as guests and as fans. Uh, people for Worldcon, for whom it's a real thing, they will use that as their year's vacation. They will go to whatever exciting city it happens to be, or unexciting city, in case you get stuck in, um, uh, you know, Omaha or somewhere. And did you actually attend uh, any of these Chinese SF panels? I did. I attended what turned out to be the sixth of six. I attended it because I had a blank space in my programming and decided that I should go to see one of these panels. And the one about China's role in science fiction seemed interesting. And I went, and I got to ask a question about Lovecraft's role in China, and it transpires that while he has his share of fans, there is no Chinese translation and no particular interest in the Chinese science fiction uh, writer community, at least as represented by these guys, uh, of writing anything in a mythos tradition. And one of the sort of scholar editors on the panel explained to me that it was because China has very little indigenous horror literature tradition, which... I have to take him at his word because I don't know the faintest thing about Chinese horror literature. So uh, what in a positive sense is Chinese SF all about? It's all about, um, the, the, there's a very interesting uh, discussion by that same uh, fellow about the sort of two strains of Chinese science fiction. And the, they both began under the Qing dynasty. And one of them was uh, Chinese science fiction is a mode by which you perform social criticism of the existing order, that it's strongly utopian, that it's once we overthrow these filthy mandarins, we're going to have ourselves a science fiction utopia. And the other uh, side of it is very much a westernizing influence, that if science fiction is yet another way to bring Western science and Western technology into China, and those two influences sort of move back and forth, and obviously the social criticism side got shut down pretty thoroughly under Mao, but has sort of come creeping back while the uh, technophile side had to bring in a lot of uh, translated Soviet science fiction, which was, of course, party-approved off and on, and uh, was the science fiction that a lot of people could read. And only with uh, sort of the opening of, of Chinese, at least in the cities, to Western uh, books and translation in the last 30 years, they've started reading, you know, classics of American science fiction. And a lot of them apparently still enjoy reading what they call the golden era of American SF, and uh, transposing it into their own interests. But this was much more sort of a, a structural type panel than it was, I'm going to tell you about what I wrote. But it seemed, I mean, they 
it, there seems to be sort of a generational difference now between people who've grown up under the Dengist era and people who had to grow up under the Maoist era and sort of watch what they said every time in public. And so I think the science fiction, their science fictional approach is defined by their domestic politics a lot more than by sort of trends within the literature. And certainly you can see within Chinese cinema that the holds that prevented people from openly questioning the system have now been relaxed to a great degree and that in a lot of ways that uh, as long as you don't get too activist about it, like Ai Weiwei, the uh, contemporary artist, that that's now permissible as sort of a release valve in the kind of anything goes capitalist communism of the current era. And I wonder if you also see, or if there's any reference to the fact that uh, you also see, for example, in Chinese cinema, a move more toward uh, the commercial and, of course, the fantastic, uh, if not the science fictional, uh, dominates uh, Chinese cinema to some degree, even though they have weirdo definitions of what is and isn't permissible in cinema. For example, not so long ago, they banned the American movie Babe because it was clearly supernatural and therefore a bad influence to have talking pigs. There was a there was a discussion of someone in the audience who was a little madder at the communists than the people on the panel were, was uh, wanted to bring up, apparently some state-run publishing house had announced that they were not going to be publishing anything about time travel because that was obviously, you know, rife with problems. And uh, I thought that that was interesting that the people on the pa panel were then like, well, they said they're not going to publish it. It doesn't mean it doesn't get written and put up on, you know, the Internet or published, you know, basically by private concerns in Hong Kong that don't care. And so there was sort of an interesting sort of a almost like a science fictional disjuncture between the state's attempt to control, uh, you know, the science fiction's ideology and the ability of of at least educated Chinese to read foreign science fiction increasingly in translation, but obviously all of the panelists spoke uh, particularly pretty good English, certainly probably good enough English to read, uh, you know, golden era science fiction. Maybe they aren't quite up to Vance or Lovecraft, but they can certainly parse Heinlein any day of the week. So there's kind of two levels of what is what receives an official imprimatur and what is actually available are two different things, and that the lack of an imprimatur does not mean that it is censored or unavailable. Yeah, the, the, another guy who was uh, who wanted to know about banned books, and the 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 panelist just said, "Well, there's stuff that if uh, if you publish it, you get in trouble, but if you own it, you're not thrown into a a, a lao guy or anything." So there 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 seems to be certainly you know it's certainly it's not uh, it's not Uncle Mao's uh, China anymore, which is certainly all to the good. So you were alluding earlier to a cultural difference between the literary SF crowd and the gaming crowd. And as I've been reading people's Worldcon reports, there does seem to be sort of a recurring theme that one of the hazards of the uh, SF convention is uh, the, I guess, the literary version of the Simpsons comic book guy, the uh, dismissive know-it-all who uh, appears on panels and uh, or it gets up in the audience and, and dominates conversation. Both uh, your your friend and uh, my contributor, Nick Mamatis, was, uh, uh, he seemed pretty happy, actually. He, he said in his blog that luckily there was only one weirdo per panel, which is uh, uh, less than you usually get. Uh, Tasha Robinson wrote about a particularly egregious uh, coffee clutch se uh, session where there were three of this guy dominating all conversation with uh, someone she wanted to speak to and sort of a timid uh, wannabe writer wanted to, to talk to them. And do you notice this or is this just an example of people remembering the 
uh, downside of uh, whatever fanish culture they happen to be engaging in. I've, I think that in my experience, uh, gaming panels uh, are a little bit better behaved both on the panelist side and on the audience side. But that may be because on a gaming panel, I feel a lot more empowered to shout people down or sort of turn them off if there's a problem and sort of uh, keep it under control. Whereas on a science fiction panel, I'm usually sort of the, and also, can I, type uh, guy. Uh, for example, on the steampunk panel, no one involved had written any steampunk, which was pretty hilarious. So I sort of was speaking only in my role as the, as the voice of Jess Nevins more than as anything else. Although I did add my own uh, contention about steampunk, which sadly we will probably have to get to in another segment. But the, the, the sort of the shouty boor, I think, is not unknown at game conventions, but I certainly, as the game convention depends on at least some modicum of socialization to be fun, that maybe there's more of it at science fiction conventions. Obviously, one hesitates to uh, stand uh, from our lofty perch atop uh, tabletop gaming and accuse science fiction of being a bunch of badly socialized nerds. But certainly, there there are jerks at panels and there are jerks in personal conversations if you're talking to somebody. One of the really great things about a world con is that Pretty much any time you rotate your head in a crowded room or a bar, you see an author that you'd really like to spend an hour or two talking to, but it's horribly rude to just sort of wander up to their table and uh, and sort of fan in on them. And, you know, as they're talking about something, then you loudly offer your opinion and say, gosh, you're writing Superman. I like Superman or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and, and you just try to avoid that as a civilized human being. And maybe the the temptation to you know if you're sitting at a at an honest to god table with Paul Cornell or or look that's John Scalzi right over there you know your your urges just sort of overcome uh your your sense of 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 well socialized behavior and, and you know there are times you accost them at that like they're uh, autographing where they're sort of you know uh sacrificial victims i was sitting next to joe walton who just won the hugo for her uh, new novel uh, i think it's called among others and uh Amongst these sort of fulsome congratulations, there was an awful lot of people that wanted to talk to Joe Walton about uh, <laughs> about their interest in Joe Walton and not so much about anything that she could add to that conversation. It's another sort of, I think, structural advantage of a gaming convention is that you are in the trade hall. If you're a creator and you, you want to be there, you can stand behind a stand where there's a pile of your books and there's sort of a transactional quality that kind of breaks the ice and doesn't require someone to horn in on a conversation that I've, I'm having in order to interact with me. And that's can sort of segue kind of more informally into a, a signing. And that's uh, one of the things that I really uh, enjoy about something like Gen Con. And then when I find myself at another convention like Fan Expo that I was uh, just at, or if I go to a, a comics event here in Toronto, I'm often struck with the realization if I'm not the guy behind the booth, I really hate this. <laughs> I, I, I hate being in this aisle. And, uh, you know, that uh, my uh, view of the uh, utopian wonderfulness of something like uh, Gen Con or Dragon Meat, of, is, of course, is completely positional. Right. Um, the thing about, uh, I, there's kind of two points. There's the dealer's room point and the, and, the, and the fan culture point. One of the things that science fiction has always had is the, is the worship of the author, which is something that we have very little of in RPG design. So you feel, first of all, you feel a, a stronger connection to Robert Silverberg than uh, the average fan feels to 
you know, uh, Kevin Zimbeda or somebody. And so you, you know, Robert Silverberg has written words that, that, you know, were very important to you as an adolescent, during which time nothing was more important than what was important to you. And so, you know, you, you really want to go talk to Robert Silverberg, whereas even if you've played and enjoyed Ars Magica, you might not even know that Jonathan Tweet designed it. And if you do, it's less likely to have been the sort of uh, defining experience of your life because you are also reading, you know, Ayn Rand or whatever. And the benefit that we get is that people um, credit us with their creativity, that we are not creating the final uh, narrative experience for them or the final game experience. And so uh, they, the things that they created, they created because we kind of helped them make them. So we're kind of on a more of a, hierarch a less hierarchical level with them, that we are their collaborators from afar uh, rather than uh, these sort of lofty uh, figures that uh, we only sort of imagine from some sort of ivory tower distance, which of course when you're inside the writing life is kind of a, a weird idea because you, uh, you know, if you have any sort of notoriety in any fan area, you are famous for exactly the number of days per year you attend one of these events and that the rest of the year you're a normal human being, which is probably the right amount of fame to have. Yeah, although obviously there's plenty of stories of uh, even uh, science fiction writers misusing that um, uh, modicum of, uh, of uh, fame. Uh, and certainly people, you know, I'm, I'm hardly immune to the temptations of uh, the ego, as you well know. Not all of us are the uh, perfect um, uh, Kierkegaardian human like yourself. <laughs> but uh, the, but the, the, the sort of, you know, the worship and adulation that you would give to, you know, uh, Joe Haldeman was at uh, the convention, for example, as a guest. And obviously he's a, you know, an epical figure in the history of science fiction, a tremendous writer. And Matt Forbeck, you know, who you'd think would know better, just could not stop fanboying about him. I mean, he didn't fanboy at him except on a uh, author cruise that uh, he and I went on on the Chicago River in the land like Michigan. And even that was relatively restrained because uh, I was witnessing it, and it was after the open bar had been open for a good long time. But, you know, if, if a fellow as, as, as level-headed and equable as Matt Forbeck can uh, turn into a, a, a swooning Bieber fan over uh, Joe Haldeman, you know, so anyone can be, uh, can be thrown for a loop by the presence of, of a uh, Harry Turtledove or a, uh, a Neil Gaiman can't even come out on the floor on these things. He has to hide in his suite for the whole world. Con. Well, and I'm sure, you know, everybody is somebody's fanboy and it doesn't matter necessarily who, you know, what level that you've achieved in whatever uh, career you've got. If you run into that guy who meant everything to you when you were 14, that does sort of uh, shut down essential cognitive functions and reduces you to, uh, blah, blah, blah. and, you know, the question then becomes, you know, how do you have a meaningful interaction that uh, both makes the other person uh, feel comfortable without, uh, you know, making a, a uh, fool of yourself? And that ultimately, I think, comes down to the graciousness of whoever it is uh, receiving the encomiums, uh, as it were. Yeah, certainly when I met Poole Anderson at an earlier science fiction convention in Chicago, uh, I he was sort of in the hall, but he wasn't moving fast, which is sort of an open gray area in science fiction conventions. And I approached him uh, without books to autograph and assured him that I had read everything he had ever written and that he was probably the reason that I was, you know, writing uh, alternate history today. And God knows what else kind of nonsense poured out of my mouth. Because like you say, I was, I was 14 again when I saw Poole Anderson and uh, he died very, not too long after that, uh, like a year after that. And, 
you know, I would much rather have made an idiot out of myself with Poole Anderson than never have told Poole Anderson how, how great and important he was to, to my intellectual and uh, literary development. So there you go, right? I mean, it, it, you know, every now and again you get a, a, a game fan who really is a, a big fan of your work and has everything and, and wants to sort of, you know, know that you've made eye contact with them. And that, that does feel nice, and as long as they're not pushy and weird about it, which fortunately my fans almost never are, uh, it, it does feel nice to be told that what something you, you created was really, really important to somebody. And if you chat with someone long enough, at least in our position, I think you'll find this true as well, is that if you turn it around and say, so, so what do you do? It'll be, well... I'm curing cancer, or I just put a satellite in the air, or I manage a multi-billion-dollar venture capital fund. And so, as soon as you uh, kind of put it in that perspective, any I, I think uh, temptation to be uh, less than gracious about uh, someone's admiration for your work kind of goes out the window. Yeah, I had a guy actually who fanned me at uh, Worldcon. Uh, he came up to me, and he was sort of a semi-pro guy like me who gets on the panels because he's in the area. And he was on the hard science panels and uh, he's, you know, talking about how great and wonderful I am. Uh, and I, I, so I was talking as you, as you do to, to him to sort of establish a human connection. And I said, so you're from around here. Cause I saw in his badge, he was from Illinois and he says, yeah, I work at Fermilab. And it's like, okay, you're basically building neutrinos or whatever the heck it is you people do. And I'm off writing nonsense about Cthulhu. So that was pretty hilarious. So let's uh, quickly run through the, uh, the panels that you were on and try and uh, glean a few nuggets and then perhaps, uh, find topics for future segments. So you were on a steampunk panel. Yes. And my guess about the steampunk panel is that the question that always comes up is, uh, what came first, the uh, style trappings or the genre? Is that is that a correct guess of what you talk about on a steampunk panel? All steampunk panels begin with a lengthy discussion about what is steampunk, and then another lengthy discussion of does dressing up in a top hat with goggles count as being steampunk, or do you have to have read a book? And if you have to have read a book, how many books and which book? And it just becomes the most tiresome example of genre theory studies for uh, physics majors that you can imagine. Uh, and so this panel was no exception, although uh, the moderator, or as we call him, the immoderator, was David Malky, the brilliant cartoonist behind Wondermark. And we had a, a Lee Barduco, the uh, New York Times uh, bestselling author of uh, what she calls Zarpunk, which is sort of secondary world fantasy with, um, you know, plumbing and guns. And so she and 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 David and I, uh, as a role-playing game designer who has done no steampunk whatsoever, uh, basically uh, could uh, rule from magisterial um, uh, uh, distance about such questions. And we sort of tried to keep it, I guess, uh, inclusive and said, because the, the thesis of the panel is that steampunk is a continuum, not a bright line, and that, you know, you can always add more of the, say, 47 tropes of steampunk to something to make it steampunker. But if someone likes something with just two of them, they shouldn't be read out of the movement, right? That it's like horror. There are books that are scarier than others, but anything with horror uh, content uh, anywhere in it can be at least addressed as horror. It's actually probably harder to find a broad genre as opposed to a sub-sub-sub-genre that does fall under hard lines, that everything, whether it's a retrospectively identified genre like film noir or sort of an obvious uh, setting-based genre like the Western has a lot of fuzzy edge cases to it, and that the exercise of deciding 
where on the continuum you fall, I guess, is essentially an exercise for people who really, really like semantic argument. Yeah, and which is not an unknown type of person, either at game conventions or science fiction conventions. Uh, indeed. So the other panels, uh, what else did you uh, discourse upon? Uh, the first panel was the uh, researching history that never happened, which is the alternate history panel. I think there were probably other ones at the at the uh, at the show, but this was the one that I was on, and it included uh, Martin Berman Gorvine, who wrote a terrific uh, book called The Severed Wing about a world in which the Holocaust never happened. Uh, Nick DiCario, who has written some short stories that I haven't read. Mary Robinette Kowal, who writes Jane Austen with magic stuff that has been moving slowly into alternate history as her history has progressed. And Adam Christopher, the guy who wrote Empire State and Seven Wonders. And so we had our panel out in the hall because the convention had double booked the room. So it was locked, uh, to contain a number of H. Ryder Haggard, uh, uh, art pieces and, uh, uh furniture pieces. Uh, so the Haggard room, <laughs> was our panel room, so we had the panel out in the hallway. And uh, fortunately, uh, Mary has theatrical training, so she was able to sort of control them with her uh, perfectly modulated voice, uh, which was handy. Because otherwise, a, a hallway panel can quickly descend into a uh, vigilante mob, and you don't want that. Yes, and we, again, had the, the, the... I think we had two annoying know-it-all guys, and both of them were just sort of shut down with a, a brusque... Uh, Mary shut one of them down with, I think we're not going to take that question just now. And another, and the other guy I shut down with, that's interesting. And then no further <laughs> feedback. <laughs> yes. The old dreaded, that's interesting as code for that is not interesting. Yes. And, uh, which is the best is because it's uh, obvious to everyone except the victim. It's uh, the, the, the slow knife that kills, as they say. Um, and then, uh, Jim Cambius, uh, thoughtfully, uh, fed me some sort of, um, uh, shill questions from the audience, which was hilarious. Well, to me anyway. And uh, it was generally a pretty, pretty strong panel. I mean, we did get into definitional annoyances there as people wanted to talk about secret history. And uh, I pointed out that secret history was just historical fiction with magic and that if we start allowing it into alternate history, we'll be here all day. So uh, we, we sort of headed that off at the past, though, not without wasting about five or ten minutes. So that's the bright line is intellectual self-defense. Yes, right. It, it's just trying to keep the panel from disintegrating completely as people want to talk about the Dresden Files or some idiocy. And your uh, panel number two would have been? Would have been the best vampire novel of the century, which was not a traditional panel in its structure in that it was run by one of the guys who was on the Horror Writers Association's expert jury to select the best vampire novel of the century, which was selected in May, I think. And it was myself... And Richard Lee Byers, who has written some uh, vampire uh, fiction, and uh, this guy, James Dore, who is a vampire poet and scholar, and was uh, on the jury because he has never written a vampire novel and therefore could be presumed to be unprejudiced. Uh, but what he wanted to do was have each of us talk about the six nominees and why they are awesome, and then we would take a straw poll and see what the audience thought. And then we would reveal the, the real answer. And then only if there was time would we take a bunch of questions from the mouth breathers out in the audience. So this is a panel with a structure. It was a panel with a structure and with a deliberate attempt to um, uh, preclude any sort of topic drift by basically making the panelists, uh, turning it more into a um, uh, presentation than a panel, I thought, uh, in the sort of standard SF or gaming con version of panel. But it worked, certainly. I mean, everyone stayed in the room and they seemed to enjoy it. And we did get a little bit at the end where uh, we got to present our sort of um, choices for uh, also-rans and honorable mentions. 
And what would your candidate be for the uh, vampire novel of the century? Well, it turned out it was the one that won. So uh, in a rare case of uh, other people being right, uh, the best vampire novel of the century is I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, which is not just a cracking good novel, but also single-handedly created uh, the scientific vampire and the zombie, uh, the Rome- post-Romero zombie subgenre. And so therefore is... Uh, Worthy of all manner of adoration. Uh, once named, that is uh, hard to argue with. It certainly is. Uh, and you had one last uh, panel we haven't talked about? Uh, yeah, the last panel that I was on was SF at the University of Chicago over the years, which was basically half uh, oral history and half, hey, do you remember that one thing that happened that one time? And what was the name of that store in the Reynolds Club that used to sell games? <laughs> and all of this kind of uh, you know ridiculousness. But since I think everyone in the audience had some connection to the University of Chicago, it was less uh, poisonous than it might have been. So it was not a rigorous look on the influence of the economics department on uh, science fiction writing? Not remotely. Uh, and John Scalzi was on it because he was the Toastmaster and because he went to the University of Chicago, although uh, we were enjoyed pointing out that he had no connection whatsoever to the science fiction club uh, when he was there. Uh, he attempted to argue that he had a great deal of connection with the uh, self-published comics scene at the University of Chicago. And since I had a connection to that as well, I couldn't quite uh, poo-poo it as uh, ridiculous uh, attempts at self-aggrandization. But it, it was only fun, literally, if you had been at the University of Science Fiction, the University of Chicago Science Fiction Club. And I can't imagine that any civilian could have withstood it. Uh, it was just, it, it was ridiculous. But, you know. So does that imply that everyone there uh, knew what they were getting into and remained in the room the whole time? I, I certainly hope that they knew what they were getting into. Uh, not everyone remains in the room at all panels. And so you can never tell if it's you or if it's just their, uh, you know, desperate multitasking because they have to go uh, be at a different panel or, or talk to someone that they've known for 10 years but only see at Worldcon. Or, God forbid, go and eat some food. Yes, or go to the dealer's room, which I did want to mention is, uh, for a science fiction convention, a pretty terrific dealer's room. But what's always hilarious is in the program book, they say, if you've never seen a Worldcon dealer's room, you've never seen a dealer's room. Unless, of course, it turns out if you've been to an Origins dealer's room. (laughs) (laughs) And a Gen Con dealer's room would simply blind and deafen these guys. You know, and I think a Comic Con dealer's room would would shut them completely uh, down entirely. Yeah, I think there would be some melting neurons at Comic Con, that's for sure. But I did pick up a lot of books for uh, if we have an eventual Waldrop, uh, Howard Waldrop's uh, discussion in Book Hut, then I am. I'm more than ready. Uh, Well, we'll have to uh, put that down in the notes for a future segment. And on that note, I think we've covered your exciting trip to Warcon. I believe so. The hot word in the uh, Lovecraftian streets of Lovecraftian gaming is... Chaosium preparing for a seventh edition of Call of Cthulhu. And recently, uh, two of its uh, lead designers, uh, Paul Fricker and Mike Mason, went uh, perhaps injudiciously on uh, yogsotheth.com and uh, provided uh, some panel information. I think this was at your convention, Lester. This was at Continuum, yes. They uh, spilled some uh, beans, which are, I think, these beans, to mix a metaphor, are not set in stone, uh, but these uh, reflect their current thinking as uh, the designers of Call of Cthulhu 7. And I guess the one of the headlines is that this is not going to be uh, just another numerical iteration that gathers in new stuff, as new versions of Call of Cthulhu often are, but is something of a 
a refit. Yeah, the the notion is that they're actually going to uh, make mechanical alterations to the game system as opposed to uh, sort of tinkering with it at the edges. Every so often, one edition will add a skill or combine two skills, or it will change uh, the name of Charisma to Appearance uh, to the great shock and dismay of everyone. Uh, between that was, that was the old Call of Cthulhu edition war between first and second edition. Or there will be a slight tinkering with the insanity rules or something. But this is a full-on attempt to rethink the mechanics remove some aspects of the game and add some new aspects to the game. Now, as bystanders to this experience, we do not have to fear the wrath of the Call of Cthulhu fan. Of course, the wrath of the Call of Cthulhu fan is well-earned because people uh, love that game, and deservedly so, and associate it with uh, their many great uh, gaming experiences over the years. It's a system they're familiar with, they know how to use. Uh, When they go to a small convention and they're looking for a game where you actually... Uh, have character interaction and talk to other characters. You basically can choose, uh, you know, Call of Cthulhu is your name brand for that. And so uh, as we learned when uh, bringing uh, Gumshoe to Call of Cthulhu with Trail of Cthulhu, uh, people have very strong feelings about that rule set, uh, which you uh, have to honor and you uh, toy with at your peril. Um, But uh, BRP does have some elements that are uh, problematic and uh, the temptation to tinker with them uh, must be uh, great because there are a couple of things that BRP for all of its uh, flexibility and story friendliness uh, pose challenges uh, to the GM or to the designer. One of those is that it has a kind of narrow sweet spot uh, that it, uh, because it's a percentile skill system, it it obviously tops out at the end of the uh, 100% uh, and uh, so you can have characters who are uh, either fail too much at the beginning or succeed too consistently when when they're at the other end, and you sort of want people with abilities in the middle band in order for the system to to work well. And then you've got the fact that uh, it runs on percentile dice, and percentile dice are basically you know d20s with a PhD. Uh, it's still a very swingy role that you have to take into account, and that. Uh, interacts in kind of troubling ways with that narrowness of the band. So if you were uh, given the task of uh, dealing with BRP, what would your first steps be? When dealing with BRP, I'm of the opinion that BRP's manifest virtues, including the virtue that everyone knows how to play it, far outweigh any uh, real imagined flaws. Most of the things that you talked about, uh, the swinginess and the narrow bandedness can be dealt with with any kind of experienced BRP GM. Uh, the, in, in Call of Cthulhu, certainly, it, even if all the characters have 100% in everything, it, it's not going to matter if you've designed the adventure correctly, because you can kill... I mean, this Call of Cthulhu, I'm, I like to say, is the game that destroyed any notion I ever had of game balance, because you just add two more deep ones to the mix, and once again, the game is balanced. Hurrah! But the... Uh, the, the, and, the and the flatness of the dice uh, provides... I mean, I, I would think that it would be a more of a problem in a game that is uh, less about the arbitrary caprices of fate than Call of Cthulhu. I mean, in if you were trying to run a sort of a, a taut spy adventure uh, game, BRP might actually have a, a weird dice performance for you. But in but in Call of Cthulhu uh, or Unknown Armies, which uh, obviously has a modified but still die 100 system, uh, the, the capriciousness is actually, as far as I'm concerned, a, a, a feature, not a bug. Um, so my modifications to Call of Cthulhu or to BRP 
would be relatively minor. Uh, the, for example, the resistance table is clunky and I never use it. I just default to straight rolls against multiples of characteristics, which I think is something that, uh, they're doing or think of doing for seventh edition. Uh, obviously everyone wants to tinker with the skill set and certainly I've done that in my day. But the, you know, the fundamental engine of BRP, if what you want to play is a, is a game of capricious, uh, world impacting fragile characters, I, I don't think there's a better system for that, even, you know, given its, um, uh, it, it's, it's quaint applications sometimes. So one of the things that they are doing is clearing away sort of the underbrush of overcategorization, uh, where things were listed, for example, in the creature stats, you've got, you know, this is a member of a lesser servitor race, and this is a greater servitor race, and this is a, you know, in-between junior purple servitor race. And of course, that reflects a sort of a level of systematization that we were very much into uh, in the hobby at that time, but is not necessarily supportable, certainly by uh, Lovecraft's text, because he, uh, as a horror writer does, uh, likes to keep things uh, undefined and also likes to change the ground rules from story to story. Yeah, you almost look at something like that as some piece of organization that maybe Sandy or, 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 or whoever had done in order to set up that first magic system where they're, well, we have to make sure we can bind all of these guys that are servitor races, so I better label them in my file and then never got around to taking that label off. It's never come up in play, in my experience, and it's never come up in a scenario even. There's never been a situation where you have a, a gun that's plus 10 damage against any lesser servitor race. That just never happens. Uh, so that that really is just systematization for the sake of systematization without even any sort of rules uh, uh, effect, and that can certainly go. The uh, They also mentioned quite rightly that they need to pare down that enormous grimoire of nonsense in the Chaosium uh, magic system that has things like, you know, attract fish, which admittedly is a Lovecraftian spell because the Deep Ones teach it to the people of Innsmouth, but there is um, uh, there's a little less role-playing utility in it. Yes, yeah, so that's something that could be left to flavor text, where you have the guy up in the hill say, well, at least the fishing's been good since the strange-looking folk came to town. You don't actually need the, uh, the stats for that. No. Although, I suppose out of perversity, you could craft a scenario depending entirely on your ability to uh, cast the most, you know, the six most ridiculous spells that have ever been codified in uh, in Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> that might a, be a fun convention run. And that sounds like a, a Clark Ashton Smith tribute, uh, if ever there was one, where you sort of play on the seven geases by taking the seven most useless spells in the grimoire and making them critical to success. Yes. Um, one of the big aesthetic leaps they're making is uh, something that I think makes a lot of sense, but I'm uh, interested to see how it is received if it makes it through the final manuscript, which is that they're dispensing with the idea of there being, you know, intelligence 12, and that gives you an idea roll, uh, you know, multiply it by five to get 60%, and they've made uh, the obvious streamlining leap of saying, why don't we just make the ability scores percentile-based, because, of course, that makes sense for a percentile system, and the idea of having them on a, a scale sort of from 3 to 18, of course, comes from a previous other game that is not about confronting the mythos. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I sort of... I, it's going to take a lot of bookkeeping is the problem with that, and it'll be a lot harder to make it uh, reverse compatible because, obviously, Chaosium used its potency rules and it's used power points and all these other things that now have to all be multiplied by five 
in order to uh, function correctly. And it's a lot of bookkeeping for what I think is, again, a fairly trivial problem. You know, leave your stats at 3 to 18, or in practice, as we used to do them, 3 to 20, and uh, just multiply by 5 when you need to, and don't call it an idea roll or a luck roll if that's what the thing that's sort of getting up your nose. But I, you know, multiplying by 5 every so often seems a lot less annoying than going through every single Chaosium, you know, sub-rule or sub-spell or sub-system, including the core of their magic system, and stripping out everything that depends on uh, uh, what turns out to be one-fifth uh, point value. And, of course, backwards compatibility is a huge issue because even more so probably than any other game, uh, Call of Cthulhu has this vast corpus of classic adventures. Uh, the genius of, of Chaosium when it was uh, really in its stride was that they had systems that you really wanted and needed adventures for because the conventional wisdom in generally in role-playing is that adventures don't sell so well, but when they're really great adventures and having them is a huge help as it is in Call of Cthulhu, people uh, not only own and collect the adventures but have a huge sense of affection for them. Sometimes people have you know, that their love of Call of Cthulhu is just as much their love of Masks of Nyarlathotep or At the Mountains of Madness as it is their love of the game itself. And you do not want to invalidate anybody's, uh, you know, 30-year collection of books with your new rule system. You want to make sure that they work well together, but the, that's easier said than done. And I guess that's also a goal of the sort of parallel project that uh, Arc Dream is undergoing as they create their uh, Delta Green role-playing game with their own new independent rule system, which also uh, is meant to be backwards compatible with previous BRP stuff. Yeah, I'm part of the Arc Dream design process, so I'm, I'll bet I can't speak too much to it. But I know that I can probably say generically that the most of the rules that we, that, uh, we are putting in, and by we I mean Greg uh, Stoltze, are, are putting in, are rules that fundamentally expand the game. You know, so there are rules that involve your interaction with government bureaucracy, including the one that you work for, or they are sort of a refinement of the sanity system, not a replacement of the sanity system. And again, it, it's early days. Rules that add, not the change. And, you know, again, anything can happen. And if we come up with something that really, really makes sense for Delta Green, we may just bite the bullet. But the goal, I think, of reverse compatibility, certainly because... You know, Arc Dream Pagan has got a lot of, you know, equally well-beloved uh, adventure and support material that they would prefer not to invalidate uh, with a new game. Uh, the, the same sort of concerns obtrude. And also the fact that everyone at Arc Dream is a, is a giant uh, Call of Cthulhu nerd and has played the hell out of it and loves it uh, more than, you know, the Pope loves um, uh, whatever it is the Pope loves this year. So it's... You know, it, it, it's always a problem, but I think it's it's less of a problem uh, for, say, Call of Cthulhu than it is for the uh, poor Mike Merles having to redesign Dungeons & Dragons again. So, uh, speaking of second-guessing, uh, how do you feel about the thought of collapsing the uh, various subtypes of fighting into an uber-fighting skill as is currently being mooted? So, instead of fist-punch and kick and grapple and headbutt, you've got fighting. I think it's a terrible idea. I think that... Um, uh, removing the granularity of weapons choices and uh, attacks makes it far too easy to build combat monsters in Call of Cthulhu uh, because you only have one skill to dump points into now. And, and that that's just antithetical. You should really, uh, the sort of the picky, annoying 
insistence that you have one skill for pistol and one skill for rifle and one skill for uh, sword and one skill for fireplace poker it is it's part of the genius of, of Call of Cthulhu is that it just makes it not just impossible but annoying to be a combat monster and someone who wants to be one of those guys has really earned it and really then can be allowed to revel in the fact that no they bought submachine gun and machine gun and rifle and pistol and blackjack you know, up to 75. And so they're entitled to have a good fight. And, and anything that makes, uh, that makes a, a, a fight more rational in the world of uh, Call of Cthulhu is a terrible idea. I think that it's god awful. So are we ultimately concluding then that the things that look like bugs in BRP are features in Call of Cthulhu? I would say 95% of the time that is going to be the case. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, as I've said, in every imaginable medium short of skywriting, is the greatest role-playing game ever designed. And it may be, uh, like King Lear, the greatest of its form that ever could be designed, but I think you should give it another century before you make that kind of sweeping statement. But the, you know, the, the, the lived experience of Call of Cthulhu, the way that Sandy worked with the existing uh, BRP structures when he built the game, it, you know, people have house ruled and home ruled and come this and done that and the other thing and there are one or two tiny phillips that make sense again the notion of the of of, of the times five uh stat roll instead of a resistance table roll that just simplifies the, the 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 case and it actually improves tension and horror but nine times out of ten the problems of brp became the problems of call of cthulhu because call of cthulhu is not a game unlike virtually every other role-playing game of personal power and advancement and therefore those pieces of the game system that frustrate that are, are valuable in Call of Cthulhu. And I think you meant to suggest that the problems of BRP are the features of Call of Cthulhu. Is that right? Right, yeah. I mean, there's also independent features of Call of Cthulhu, but yes. Uh, well, on that note, I guess we have uh, uh, gummed over the poor designers of uh, Call of Cthulhu 7. So at this point, before we uh, sneak out of the segment, we must nonetheless uh, extend them our... Uh, admiration and, and wish them luck in the uh, difficult journey into the ghoul catacombs below. And uh, since we have uh, not even addressed the other, uh, perhaps uh, what an unkind observer might describe, the gumshoeification of Call of Cthulhu by the new 7th edition rule set, uh, they can sit in proper Lovecraftian terror at uh, segment 2 of... <laughs> Yeah, so I was skirting that due to self-interest issues, but perhaps we will uh, be in a flamethrowery mood later. Right. Professional game designers, we have at least a nodding interest in the business of gaming, and every so often we attempt to inculcate that interest in you, the great and good listeners of this podcast, in a segment that we originally call The Business of Gaming. So what I thought we could talk about today is the uh, partial settlement of the uh, ebook price-fixing case against uh, a number of publishers, uh, HarperCollins, Hachette, and Simon & Schuster, are alleged and are now conceding that they engaged in uh, price fixing with uh, others of the big six publishers and uh, with Apple when they switched 
uh, ebook sales from the uh, retailer determined pricing structure that uh, allowed Amazon to sort of establish an early foothold and uh, dominate the market early on to what they call the agency model, where uh, in what is uh, kind of an upended arrangement for uh, most distribution chains, the manufacturers uh, started dictating the uh, retail price. Now, you could argue that in brick and mortar stores, that essentially the uh, manufacturers kind of by a, a joint understanding with the entire distribution chain kind of set the retail pricing and that there were uh, sales for best sellers and so forth, but you didn't have the massive disruption that you had when Amazon entered the market and finally cracked the marketing challenges of the ebook. And so now you've got uh, HarperCollins, Hachette, and Simon & Schuster paying $69 million, which will then be distributed uh, to people who bought ebooks throughout the United States, except for Minnesota. Minnesota can suck it. <laughs> well, technically, it'd be distributed to the lawyers that filed the suit. Well, yes. But theoretically speaking, people who bought uh, uh, ebooks after the lawyers get their uh, giant carve-out will then get uh, some amount of money that may bear some resemblance in some form to the um, extra that they uh, spent during the agency model period. And so this is sort of a classic tale of price fixing. It seems, uh, without my being a lawyer or having been in the room at the time, seems kind of open and shut. It seems that uh, one of the other publishers uh, belatedly realized what they'd done and went to the uh, Depart U.S. Department of Justice and said, yeah, you know, we, we had all these meetings and stuff, and we talked about these things. I don't know, there were margaritas involved, and we just went crazy. And at the end of the day, we realized that we've been engaged in price fixing, so uh, why don't we turn state's evidence and you crush all of our uh, uh, colleagues slash competitors? And so the, uh, the word on that is that supposedly that's Random House. Um, and so it's sort of, the whole schlamazel, though, seems odd in that eventually at the end of the day, any pricing structure for any product is based on finding this sweet spot where you get the most number of people to buy your product. And that the difficulty that they had in this case is they wanted to fix prices not so much to control the future market of ebooks, but to protect their current brick and mortar model as long as they possibly could in the face of this massive disruption. Yeah, the 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 whole uh, big six publishers and print publishers in general have responded to uh, to ebooks in much the same way that the recording industry responded to uh, downloadable music, which is to say, with uh, flailing and trumpeting as they sink further into the tar pit, and the contrast between these guys and our uh, relatively nimble, small, egg-eating mammals uh, in the gaming industry has been instructive, certainly, that uh, without an awful lot of to-do about it, uh, with, aside from the occasional idiocy like wizards taking all of their PDFs off the market, uh, the notion that, uh, yeah, we just sort of moved right into the market and started selling it like we'd sell whatever we would, and some publishers give the PDF away for free as an incentive to buy the the book, and some publishers charge some fragment of the of the cover price and some publishers even charge full cover price. It turns out to be the surprise upside of not really having a functioning structure to begin with. There is nothing monolithic to be disrupted. Yeah, and our and since our big uh publishers were traditionally uh relatively slow and stupid, uh it allowed sort of the smaller, more nimble uh second rank publishers to sort of set the rules for the for the ebook market. And by the time, you know, Wizards and White Wolf had sort of 
turned around and seen what was going on, uh, Green Ronin and uh, Hero and um, uh, even Steve Jackson had pretty much set up the expectations in the marketplace for how uh, people would be able to buy books. And it's a smart expectation, particularly the, the companies that think, oh, wait a minute, giving you the PDF because you bought the print book isn't a matter of preventing us from, you know, one thing cannibalizing the other, but is an incentive that they, the print book has a different functionality than the electronic file. And that really what you want to do is have loyal customers who keep playing your games. And I guess that is a difference between uh, gaming and, uh, you know, fiction and nonfiction is, although, you know, if I sell you one Nora Roberts novel, I possibly have the expectation that you will continue to buy other Nora Roberts novels, that that expectation is even clearer in gaming. Whereas if I sell you a player's handbook, I expect I will also be able to sell you a lot of follow-on products so that the idea of making you a loyal, happy customer by giving you both versions for the same price, as many but not all people in our field do, is just, uh, you know, sort of a smart way of taking advantage of uh, a disruption and turning it into a plus. And certainly, um, you know, some uh, publishers in the in the uh, non-gaming segment, the print segment, have been doing that kind of thing. I mean, banned books in the science fiction realm is famous for giving away free ebooks, uh, pretty much at the drop of a hat. There's a huge Bain free library. They, they do an awful lot to encourage again. And, and because they publish a lot of series, uh, you know, you buy one honor Harrington book, you can get the, the first four probably by now or whatever it is for free or for dirt cheap, 99 cents. And then you're stuck because the whole point of writing that series is to get people, you know, who God save them just can't stop reading about Honor Harrington. But although, you know, this has been proven to work, at least in certain niche sectors, it's something that you, somehow cannot convince the big uh, CEO guys. And that's partly down to the fact that uh, when you do have a big structure in place, it's easy enough to say, adapt to the coming wave of disruption where everything will be different three years from now. But what do you do in that three years when your current structure is only being eroded and the new structure is not yet in place? Well, in some cases, you panic, drink a lot of margaritas, and price fix. get yourself stuck. <laughs> get stuck in a price fixing arrangement. Yeah, and it's, a, it's sort of an instructive middle ground as well. How DC and Marvel have both been trying to deal with it because uh, apparently, although I don't have uh, one of the fancy machines that makes it so fancy, uh, reading a comic book on an iPad is apparently a revelatory experience if the coloring is right, and. So they've sort of discovered that accidentally there's something in the future that will make a comic book relevant again. And they're uh, with what seemed to us in gaming to be laughable hesitations and fits and starts moving into that market far more strongly than any of the big six, uh, you know, print publishers of, of books that, you know, the technology is by now probably a decade old to read uh, online uh, with uh, no discomfort. It's just very strange to me. But again, I'm not the guy who believes that you need to pay Manhattan rent in order to publish books to sell in Kansas. So Well, and I think that's ultimately where publishing is going to go, is that it will more strongly resemble our crazy, I've got a barn, I've got a manuscript, let's put on a, a limited edition followed by a paperback model, uh, where you will, will most, most books are niche products currently being sold through a mainstream distribution network. And we're, I think we're going to move to a model where uh, as we are already doing in gaming, niche products are going to be sold through a niche distribution channel. There will still be big publishers to produce the best-selling novels that you buy in airports, but we're going to move back almost to sort of a, 
a, a small press model, which is more what the model was when, you know, the great American novels, the, the great mainstream fiction of the early part of the century, those were small shops where they were just as attuned to the question of culture, of releasing a great slate of books uh, than they were to making money. And often they were just sort of eking by. They were, uh, you know, breaking even if they were lucky, but they were not part of gigantic corporate entities in which they were expected to slash staff and contribute to the bottom line. And that's the other side of the e-publishing thing for authors is that slowly the big publishers have moved out of uh, doing the things for authors that used to justify their existence. And so now they're sort of looking around and panicking. And of course, their response often is to make the contracts and arrangements even more explicit, uh, I guess, in a sort of a demise hastening sort of way. So that, you know, even Ursula K. Le Guin is getting her contracts now and going, what? You want me to sign this? Uh, almost as if they, uh, you know, really want to finish themselves off and go back to the bar and uh, switch from margarinas to uh, scotch, probably. Yeah, the 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 notion that, uh, well, I mean, we could sit here all day and talk about how odd and ridiculous it is, uh, the, the behaviors of, of the big six, but it seems to be sort of an endemic quality of decision-making in an organization once it gets over a certain size, and certainly once it gets uh, any sort of permanent revenue stream, uh, because obviously, you know, once you've published Twilight or uh, Oprah's Cook's memoir or whatever it happens to be, you are really insulated from any kind of bad decision you make for the rest of, you know, the decade sometimes. Uh, it, it just seems to be sort of that sort of decision-making process, and we shouldn't necessarily pretend it's unique to uh, the big six publishers. But on the other hand, it's not something that you can solve by uh, calmly pointing out that they're being idiots. Well, since we could uh, talk all day, let's not, and move on to our next segment. So this is the inauguration of yet another new segment, uh, this one I call History Bending, to distinguish it from the nearly indistinguishable History Hut. And the idea here is we're going to look at uh, interesting little factlets from history, uh, put them together, and see what crazy, gameable, or fiction-worthy use uh, we can put it to. So we're going to try and uh, riff a little bit and see uh, what uh, weird connections we can make between uh, different facts in history. And of course, Ken, this is a big part of your method that you talked about earlier when you talked about uh, the Earth being the most interesting possible setting for uh, fiction and games. Yes, uh, the notion that uh, with just an insultingly small modicum of research, you can find things that are weirder than you had thought possible, much less uh, weirder than you had thought uh, plausible. Um, it, it's just ridiculous that people don't do it all the time. And it's it, it really is only as hard as reading one thick book on any topic before you're inundated in uh, notions that uh, on the surface make no sense and on the subsurface make the best kind of gaming imaginable. Well, speaking of weirdness, uh, one thing I came across when I was reading a sort of a dual biography of uh, Charles Lindbergh, the aviator who made the first transatlantic crossing and then uh, famously uh, uh, was involved both in the... Uh, tragic uh, kidnapping and death of his baby, and then uh, uh, became a little too friendly with Nazi Germany. Uh, Charles uh, Lindbergh, and uh, someone he worked with a lot after his uh, flight was a guy named Dr. Alexis Carell. 
who was a interesting character with a lot of uh, weird, pulpy uh, facts uh, on his resume. And at the same time, Lindbergh was also uh, great friends with a guy named Donald Kehoe, uh, who uh, wrote a uh, biography of him uh, early on and managed his personal appearance tours and later became a leading figure in UFO investigation. And the uh, book is called uh, The Immortalists by David Friedman. And if you like your uh, well-written weird history, I strongly recommend that. Uh, so do those names trigger bells with you, or should I uh, give you some more factlets to work with? Those names are uh, legendary in the field of the crazy, because uh, Alexis Carell is certainly your sort of go-to guy for every possible sort of uh, conspiracy or weirdness in uh, the sort of the 30s and 40s era. Um, he uh, sort of was a polymath, one of those guys right at the very tail end of uh, the 30s, where you could be legitimately a scientific investigator in, in many different fields. So he would discuss ESP with Einstein or eugenics with uh, Henry Ford. Um, uh, Carell's foundation was, uh, you know, uh, covering uh, eugenics, uh, cybernetics, um, the chemical factors of spiritual growth, uh, longevity, as you mentioned, uh, the social and economic conditions that are indispensable, indispensable to the life of the elite, and uh, the genesis of great leaders. So he's basically got all that plus reanimated body parts. Uh, Carell is a never-ending cycle of, of excitement. And, of course, Donald Kehoe is the author of the, uh, I believe it's the Flying Saucers Are Real, as well as other terrific UFO books. Uh, uh, Lindbergh talked UFOs with Carl Jung in 1959. And I'll, as a matter of fact, Lindbergh flew a V-173 flying pancake in 1972, so he flew a flying saucer. Uh, he, Lindbergh, also was instrumental in getting uh, Robert Goddard's rocket workshop set up at Roswell, New Mexico. So there's another sort of cycle around to that exciting world. And not only was Carell a pulp character in our real universe, uh, Donald Kehoe uh, wrote pulps. He wrote for Weird Tales. Uh, he had a couple of iconic heroes, uh, both of whom were aviators, uh, one of whom was an aviator with ESP, and another was an aviator who was blinded but had the superpower of still being able to see at night. Yes. And, uh, of course, this was uh, held against him when he started writing that uh, UFOs are real. His uh, pulp background was uh, used as a, uh, as a club to beat him with. Um, so there's all sorts of things that you can draw on if we're going to use... Uh, the sort of uh, uh, Corral or Kehoe and Lindbergh and combine them in, with something. At one point, I was thinking of actually doing a drama system setting uh, set in an alternate world where uh, Corral and Lindbergh had achieved their goal of human immortality and established uh, their uh, ruling council of supermen, uh, a question to which they devoted a fair amount of thought as to how this would actually work. And of course, naturally speaking, the ruling council of Superman would include uh, Alexis Carell and Charles Lindbergh. So I was thinking of doing a, a game where uh, they had achieved their uh, quasi-utopian fascist rule, and we had gone forward in time, say, to the 50s, and then you would be playing members of the, the household of the ruling council. And then I realized that you could do almost all of that without having to have all of the historical backstory of explaining who Lindbergh and, and Krell were. <laughs> well, that, that'll always happen. Um, 
but uh, the, the the notion that um, you can use Lindbergh and Carell's uh, notions as a as a springboard for for an alternate history is is one. I think that they work a little bit better as secret history explanations, uh, given the sort of notion of the aviator as some sort of uh, initiate slash superhero that he had in the in the twenties thirties. Uh, the notion that, um, for example, Lindbergh uh, believed that when he was flying over the uh, Atlantic that he saw sort of uh, spiritual presences in the co- in the cockpit with him uh, and would talk about these sorts of experiences with people like Francis Young's husband, the British uh, captain who invaded Tibet and had his own mystical experiences up there on the glaciers. Uh, so I, I think that it, it, it works uh, just a little bit better as secret history than as alternate history. But obviously, once you've got eugenic bionic supermen, you can pretty much do anything you want. And I think among the favorite things of Alexis Carell, so his main project that he worked on with Lindbergh was to create vacuum tubes in which uh, organs of mammals would uh, survive uh, without uh, decomposing outside of the body. And I'm not entirely sure what the step two, three, and four that would lead lead to immortality was from that, but they definitely were uh, working on that project. And Lindbergh supplied his sort of physical, technical ap- uh, expertise to help create the seals and create these sort of vacuum tubes that would uh, enable the, you know, entire uh, circulatory system of a cat to uh, survive for several days outside of the cat. Although uh, that's not the, the most exciting detail is that once uh, Carell actually tried to uh, revivify a 3,000-year-old Egyptian mummy. See, there you go. One, one hardly needs any more than, than, than that. Yeah, so essentially I guess what you can do uh, with Corral is just say those things that history says uh, he didn't succeed in doing. Well, you know what? Well, he did those. And, you know, the whole mummy thing, there was a panic, so he didn't want to tell people. Or because the, the mummy um, had some sort of uh, arcane wisdom or, or specialized knowledge, he just said it didn't work and then replaced it with another mummy that... Uh, Lindbergh had acquired through his shadowy contacts in the Freemasonic Order. So we've got our revived mummy acting as a psychopomp now for uh, Corral and Lindbergh. And uh, what does the mummy do to draw uh, Kehoe and the UFOs into this uh, secret history? Well, one can certainly uh, start with the notion that Lindbergh makes contact with the aerial intelligences, uh, as he indeed said that he did, uh, on his 1927 flight. So they're already talking. And the mummy becomes a necessary sort of ambassador or interlocutor between the uh, the aerial intelligences and uh, Lindbergh. And they can still be either, you know, aliens or they can be what uh, John Keel uh, beautifully named the ultra-terrestrials, the beings that are from another dimension. Or they can be demons in the good old classical sense of the term, which is why mummies and uh, weird fascism and uh, reanimated cats come into it. Uh, there's there, there's any number of directions you can take it, and Kehoe, of course, is sort of uh, the factotum, uh, man of all work, get it done type uh, guy who goes around and is laying down the sort of uh, protocols and propaganda. Maybe he's Lindbergh's, uh, you know, connection to the uh, Air Force investigation, since there's so much uh, connection between uh, the uh, disinformation uh, U.S. Air Force. Uh, in U.S. Navy programs and the history of UFO lore that basically as long as Lindbergh and Carell have their immortal mummy backing, uh, the government can't do anything about them. So it's sort of a, a multi-sided uh, arrangement with Kehoe as the 
as as the as the go between between uh, Lindbergh and the military. And one of the great themes in u- ufology is that uh, pop culture representations of aliens and UFOs are, of course, all part of a grand scheme to slowly over a period of what now seems like a lot of decades, but let's let's run with that, uh, is designed to acclimatize people to the idea that the alien intelligence will, will actually one day finally contact us. So perhaps uh, he is also, in his weird tales of his superpowered aviators, preparing us for the revelation that Charles Lindbergh has already uh, become, perhaps through the intercession of the mummy, the basis for his pulp hero, and indeed has had these crazy adventures and uh, probably has ESP rather than being able to only see in the dark, since we can document the fact that Lindbergh can see perfectly well in the light. Right, yeah. Or maybe like um, uh, like Daredevil, he, his other senses have become so powerful that he can pretend to be able to see uh, by day. And uh, that his uh, his night sight is sort of a, a, a mystical uh, power, not so much a question of his optic nerves being one way or the other. Uh, the uh, the other possible connection you can have between mummies and uh, UFOs is that uh, Alistair Crowley, when he was in Egypt, uh, communed with a, a being named Iwas, uh, which uh, spoke to him through a, a figure called Lamb. And when he drew Lamb, it looked like a gray alien. And so if the gray aliens are the psychic form of Egyptian uh, higher intelligences, then obviously there's a lot going on on that uh, mummy UFO cycle that uh, a fellow like Donald Kehoe, and again, if he's writing for, for weird tales, he may be part of some other uh, secretive group uh, surrounded uh, surrounding Lovecraft or surrounding uh, Seabury Quinn or Manly Wade Wellman or any of these other sort of people who are revealing the truth by uh, concealing the truth in fiction. And so we've wended our way to a classic theme, which of course is that uh, Lovecraft was describing something real. And I think when one wends oneself to a classic theme, uh, one concludes one's podcast. Okay. If uh, if the appearance of a classic theme is uh, the signal for an Aristotelian anagnoresis and climax, then that is what we have achieved. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pograin Press. Find our website at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Leave comments, odd utterances, and much-needed questions for our Ask Ken and Robin segment. Or for those of you who prefer push media to pull, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, I'm at Kenneth Height. And I'm at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.